May God be gracious to us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And all of God's people said, Amen. In the 18th century, English Baptists were in trouble. The general Baptists were denying the Trinity and were descending quickly into universalism and Unitarianism. The particular Baptists were frozen in a hyper-Calvinism that had collapsed the covenant of grace back into the covenant of redemption. They were positing eternal justification of the elect. They were teaching that sinners needed a warrant to believe. And thus they had little place in their theology for evangelism and no place for missions. They thought it was cruel and immoral to tell sinners to do something that they had no power in themselves to do, namely to repent and believe. So they didn't. Furthermore, they taught that the Great Commission was addressed to Jesus' immediate disciples only, that it had been fulfilled in the life of the early church, and thus there was no longer any mandate to take the gospel to the nations and no reason to do so anyway. It was a dry and a despairing time to be a Baptist. Enter Andrew Fuller and William Carey. Two particular Baptist pastors in the Northamptonshire Association in England. In 1785, Fuller published The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, or The Duty of Sinners to Believe in Jesus Christ. And this work dropped, it's only about 100 pages, it dropped like a bomb on the English Baptist landscape, effectively breaking the stranglehold that hyper-Calvinism had upon the denomination. In that work, Fuller argued that the proper object of faith is not knowledge of one's election or knowledge of one's regeneration, but rather Christ crucified and risen and freely offered to all who will believe. In other words, Fuller said, the question a sinner should ask is not, am I elect? So that I may believe, or am I born again so that I may believe? But rather, do I believe Christ? Do I believe his promise to forgive the sins and grant eternal life to all who will come from him, come to him, and to turn away none that call upon him? He insisted that sinners do not need a warrant to believe because the sinners already have warrant to believe in the gospel. He demonstrated that one could believe in sovereign particular election and believe in the free offer of the gospel. Not only did he demonstrate that it was possible, he demonstrated it that it was in fact the view of Christ and his apostles, not to mention the very first Baptists. 
with the chains of hyper-Calvinism thus broken and, and the solid ground of an evangelical Calvinism established, now it was William Carey's turn. And so the following year, in 1786, William Carey preached at the annual meeting of the Northamptonshire Association, and he preached on the Great Commission. And his point was simple. If the promise of Christ to be with his church extends to the end of the age, right? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If that promise of Christ extends to the end of the age, then surely so does Christ's command to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The logic was irrefutable, though some tried It's reported that the chairman of that meeting, John Collett Ryland, said to Carey, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. But Fuller supported Carey. And together they began to turn the tide of the association and eventually the tide of the whole Baptist denomination. And in 1792, the Baptist Missionary Society was formed and William Carey was commissioned as its first missionary, ministering in India for the next 40 years. Andrew Fuller served as the society's secretary. He worked tirelessly to raise funds and administrate the society until his death in 1815. And it was in this way that the modern mission movement was born. Late in his life, Fuller recalled those early days, the early deliberations late at night with him and William Carey about the possibility of sending missionaries to worlds unknown, in places where Christ had not been named. And Fuller wrote, Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never before been explored. We had no one to guide us, and while we were deliberating, Carey, as it were, said, Well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. And I love that image because it captures perfectly the relationship between the missionary and the missional church. The missionaries are those who descend down into the darkness of the mind to shine the light of the gospel where it has not been seen, where the gospel of Christ has not been known. They have no idea what's down there. They have no idea what awaits them or how far down the drop goes. But with indelible courage, they descend into the darkness nonetheless. But they don't descend alone. Because the churches that are back home up on the surface are the rope holders. And with strong and sure hands, they, they lower the missionaries down into the darkness and they, they hang on while the missionaries do their work. And then they raise them back up when the work is done or when the missionaries need help. And that's our job at First Baptist Nixa. Our job is to hold the rope. We hold the rope for Mike and Casey Sadich as they go down into the depths of Indonesia. We hold the rope for Matt and Emily Tyler as they go down into Shanghai. We hold the rope for Stuart and Lisa Bell as they descend into the darkness of Seattle. And perhaps, God willing, we hold the rope for Stephen and Kelly Shaddix as they descend into the post-Christian darkness of the Czech Republic. We are rope holders at First Baptist Nixa. 
Now, last week in part one of this sermon, we saw what makes a good rope holder, what makes a good missional church. We noted that Romans is really a missionary support letter. It began that way. And after 15 chapters of glorious, redemptive theology, it ends that way. The second half of chapter 15 is all about Paul's missionary philosophy, his missionary labors, his missionary plans. And he's asking the church at Rome to become his new missionary partners. He wants to come to Rome, stay there for a while, be refreshed in their company, and then be resupplied by them and sent by them off to Spain into the western reaches of the Roman Empire where Christ had not yet been named, where there was not yet a church. In verse 14, Paul gives us a glimpse into what he thought of the Roman church and why he wanted to partner with them, why he thought they would make good rope holders. Thus, we noted last week four characteristics of a missional church, four qualities that make a good church missionary partner. Such a church is faithful. It believes the gospel. The gospel is the core of their identity and the center of their ministry. Such a church is good, that is, kind and generous. It's the kind of church that missionaries find refreshing. Third, such a church is knowledgeable. They're committed to doctrinal integrity. They hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And such a church is wise. They understand how to instruct one another with the word. They know how to apply biblical truth in the messy lives of members so that the church remains stable and healthy and able to provide a consistent missionary support. And how does a missional church partner with missionaries on the field? Well, we look to the book of Philippians and we answered that question in three ways. They partner with missionaries by proclaiming the gospel by word and by deed where they're planted. They pray for missionaries faithfully and fervently. And they provide funds so that missionaries can fulfill their ministry. That's what makes a good missional church. That's what a good missional church does That's what makes a rope holder. Now in verses 15 to 21, Paul gives us insight into his mission philosophy. And from these verses, we can construct a picture of the kind of missionary that we want to hold the rope for. The kind of missionary that we want to partner with as they descend into the darkness of worlds unknown where Christ has not been named. Because we ought not and we cannot partner with every missionary that comes our way. We need to be discriminating and wise because many missionaries wind up on the field who should not be there, who cause more harm than good and who wind up burning out and leaving a trail of destruction behind them. We don't want to partner with those kind of missionaries. We want to partner with Pauline missionaries. That is missionaries who share the missions theology and missions philosophy of Paul. In other words, we want to be the kind of church that Paul would want to partner with. And we want to partner with the kind of missionaries who are like Paul. So from verses 15 to 22, we can identify seven characteristics of a Pauline missionary. We're going to cover the first four this week. We'll return in a couple weeks to grab the last three. First, 
Pauline missionaries, good missionaries, need to have an orthodox theology. We don't want to support heretics, frankly. But neither do we want to support theological nincompoops. They don't belong on the field. They don't belong in the ministry. Why? Because missions is the fulfillment of the great commission. And the great commission says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? And what? Teaching, 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 teaching them what? All things that I have commanded you. Missionaries are teachers of the word of Christ. They are teachers of all the words of Christ. So you can't be a missionary with only a superficial understanding of theology and scripture, armed with a couple of Bible stories and some gospel tracts that won't cut it. Everything on the mission field is amplified. The stresses are amplified, the joys are amplified, and the errors are amplified. That's why theological orthodoxy is a non-negotiable when it comes to missionaries. When everything you do is new and establishes a precedent, you've got to think in terms of trajectory. What's the trajectory of this teaching? How will people without a broadly Christian cultural background, understand what I'm saying? Am I teaching them an accurate conception of the Trinity, of redemption, of the church, of what it means to follow Christ? Missionaries need to spend a lot of time thinking about those kinds of questions. So we go back to Andrew Fuller. Fuller had little formal education. It was true that he was naturally gifted, but he did not have the benefit of teachers or tutors or college or university training. When he had learned all that his local schoolmaster could teach him, he simply dropped out and worked at his father's dairy farm. Nevertheless, he read and read and read and read. And when he was 28 years old, he was called to the pastorate of the Baptist Church in Kettering, Northamptonshire. And as part of the ordination process, he constructed from scratch a 20-article confession of faith. I read it last weekend, and it's really, really good. And here's my point. That was just standard operating procedure in those days. That confession of faith was not the prodigious work of a naturally gifted genius. That was the work of a country pastor with something like an eighth grade education. And it was the standard procedure for all ordinations, for pastors even moving from one church into a new pastorate. And so when 10 years later, in 1792, when Fuller was responsible to send the first Baptist missionaries to the field... He would not have expected anything less from them. And his correspondence shows that he was not afraid of writing to his missionaries on the field when they began to deviate from what he thought was theological orthodoxy. Now, where do we get this from the text? Well, look with me at chapter 15 and verse 15. 
Paul says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. On some points, what points? Well, it's unclear, but it's certainly a reference to the previous 15 chapters of Romans. Paul wrote an entire discourse of redemptive theology in order to remind the Romans of the gospel. And my point is that missionaries ought to be able to do something like that. Now, they're not going to write Romans, but they ought to be able to write the same theology as Romans. They ought to be able to describe the gospel in, in the depth at which Paul describes the gospel in Romans. They ought to be able to produce a confession of faith like Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller had an eighth grade education, but he knew his theology. There's absolutely no excuse today for theological ignorance, if indeed there ever was. Missionaries today have unprecedented access via the internet to unlimited resources that are rich in theology. Books are cheaper today than they ever have been. It seems to me then that the only reason for theological ignorance is apathy and we don't want apathetic missionaries. So the first qualification of a Pauline missionary, the kind of missionary that we want to partner with, is that they must be orthodox in their theology. Second, they must have a confident authority that is rooted in their divine calling. It was this confident sense of authority, this confident sense of calling that gave Paul the boldness to write to a church with whom he had no prior relationship, which he had never visited, and instruct them in the gospel. That's pretty bold. And then, not only does he write them to instruct them in the gospel, he asks for their support and their partnership in his future missions endeavors to Spain. Look again at verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. See, Paul knew that he had been called to be a minister to Christ Jesus, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And it was on that basis of authority as one sent by God that he wrote boldly and preached boldly and suffered boldly and eventually died boldly. There was no mistaking Paul's divine commission. You remember the story, Acts chapter 9. He was on the road to Damascus, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and and carrying letters from the high priest that granted him authority to arrest any Christians that he found in the synagogue in Damascus and to bring them bound back to Jerusalem for punishment. Instead, on his way to Damascus, he found himself arrested by the appearance of the Lord and he was converted and commissioned in one sovereign act. He records it in Acts 26, verse 16. But Jesus said to him, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus told him that. 
And that's how he had the audacity to write to Romans with the boldness that he did. Paul was aware that it might be perceived as somewhat forward for him to write to them like that, but he did it anyway. Why? Because that's what Christ had called and commissioned him to do, and he knew it. Therefore, to not speak the gospel boldly to the Roman church would have been disobedience to Christ. We want to partner with missionaries with that kind of confidence. Now, let me be clear. I don't expect our missionaries to have a Damascus Road experience. If that's what we're waiting for, if that's what we're looking for, we're going to be waiting for a very long time. Those kind of experiences are not usual. They're not normative. But when I ask these prospective missionaries the question, why? Why are you heading to the mission field? What makes you think God has called you to go there. I want them to be able to respond with confidence. I want them to be able to track and, and relate the convergence of three essential aspects of the missionary call. Number one, I want them to discuss an unyielding passion for the work of the gospel in that particular culture, such that they're frankly dissatisfied at the thought of doing anything else. They can echo Paul's sentiment in, in 1 Corinthians 9.16, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. They, they know and can, and can define something of that kind of passion. Number two, because passion is not enough. I want them to be able to evidence the giftings and the qualifications necessary for the pastorate. If the goal of missions is to plant self-sustaining, self-evangelizing churches in another culture where Christ has not or is not being named, and it is, then the missionary who intends to plant those churches needs to be qualified to pastor those churches. But passion, giftings, and qualifications are still not enough. They need, thirdly, the affirmation of their local church. Mission agencies do not send missionaries. Churches send missionaries. How can they preach unless they are sent, Paul asks. You remember Paul was sent out by a particular local church. Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit, as the elders were, were praying and ministering before the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Paul to the work to which I have called them. And so the church did. They gathered, they laid hands on them, they supplied them, and they sent them out. I want to know that these missionaries have been faithful and have been thriving in their local church. Because if they're not faithful there, they're not going to be faithful over there. So unless a missionary possesses this confident sense of divine calling that has been given to them through the convergence of those three essential aspects. They're confident of the sense of being set apart and sent by the Holy Spirit through the local church. If they don't have that, they're going to lack the boldness and the audacity to call sinners from another culture to repentance and faith in Christ. Without that confident sense of calling, they're going to lack the confidence to tell people of another culture and from a different religion, your gods are false. Therefore, repent and believe. Third, 
Missionaries we partner with must have a theocentric missions philosophy, a theocentric worldview. Now, Mike tells me I need to define these words. He said, they're too big. I said, that's okay, Mike. First Baptist Nixon likes big words. Theos is the Greek word for God. Centric means centered. God-centered. We want our missionaries to have a God-centered view of missions. At least that's what we want if we want our missionaries to think like Paul thought. Look at the way he describes his ministry among the Gentiles to whom he was sent. Verse 16. I was sent to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating. It's the way he thought of missions. It's a priestly service. Five words in this verse, this one verse, point to this, this image of priests and sacrifices. The word minister literally means priest. Priestly service refers to the ministry performed by priests in the temple, particularly the offering of sacrifices. The word translated offering refers specifically to a sacrificial offering upon an altar. Acceptable was the description of those sacrifices offered according to God's law. And sanctified was used concerning the consecrating of sacrifices at the hands of the priests in Exodus 29.33 and other places. So Paul, Paul wanted to have, in, he, he wanted them to understand the way he thought about missions. And it wasn't the way that many people think about missions. Paul had in the back of his mind the prophecy of Isaiah in which the Lord declares that he will send his messengers. Isaiah 66, 19. I will send them to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And Paul said, yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to the coastlands. I'm going to the nations where they haven't heard of God's fame. They haven't heard of God's glory. And I'm going and I'm getting and I'm bringing them back and I'm going to offer them on the altar before the Lord my God. It's the way he thought. He was the priest of God. The Gentiles were the sheep. His job was to go out and collect sacrificial lambs, slay them with the word of the gospel, sanctify them with the Holy Spirit, and offer them as an acceptable sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God. What a strange way of viewing missions. In other words, it's not ultimately about rescuing the perishing. That was certainly a goal, and Paul speaks in that way at other times. But it wasn't the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, Romans 15, 9, was that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's theocentric, God-centered, rather than man-centered. That is God-centered missions. We go ultimately because we're convinced that it is a travesty of cosmic proportions that there are places in this world where God is not known and worshipped. We go across the street because we regard it a travesty of cosmic proportions that our neighbor does not worship God as God deserves. Now, can I tell you why this is vital in missionaries rather than going ultimately for the good of man? 
It's because missions is hard. And culture shock is crushing. You have no idea if you've never experienced it. In a culture in which everyone does everything different than the way that you do it. They think differently. They speak differently. They act differently. They eat differently. They relate differently. If you add to that the fact that most of them are either hostile or indifferent to the gospel, then it becomes all too easy to begin to resent, even detest, the very people that you were sent to try to save. And so if it was love for them that ultimately took you to the field, how will you stay on the field when that love is tested and indeed when it evaporates? But if you go for God, for his name, for his fame, for his glory, then whether the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy or you glorify God by your faithful endurance of persecution, either way, there is abundant reason to stay on the field and stick it out when things get tough. Fourth, and lastly for today, they need to have a Calvinistic soteriology, two more big words. Now, Calvinistic is a complex term that has a lot of baggage. And I wouldn't have used it this morning, except that that's the term Fuller and Carey used to describe themselves. And since they're serving as our Pauline models this morning, I thought we ought to use the same term. Basically, it means that they believe it is God who saves sinners from beginning to end And that he does so by sovereign grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the blood and the righteousness of Christ alone. Soteriology simply refers to the doctrine of salvation. So what we want are missionaries who believe and love the truths of Romans 9 through 11. Now, I don't care if they claim the label. I don't even care if they can enumerate the five points or if they quibble on one or two of them. That's not my point. My point is we need missionaries with a high view of God in the work of salvation. Romans 9.16. We want our missionaries to be able to say this. So then it, that is salvation, the mercy, the compassion of God, it depends not on human will or exertion. It depends on God who has mercy. Or Romans 11, 5 and 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Or Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I threw in that last verse because Calvinism does not deny the free offer of the gospel and the promise of salvation to everyone who will call on the name of Christ. Calvinists love that truth. It's the warrant for missions. But Calvinists also love the truth that those who call on the name of the Lord are those who have been chosen in Christ by grace from the for, before the foundations of the world so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That it's not according to works, it's according to grace from ages past. Now, obviously, Paul believed this. He wrote Romans 9 through 11. 
but he also worked out that theology in the way that he thought about and practiced missions. Look at verses 17 and 18. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now, Paul was not completely averse to talking about his own labors on the mission field when occasion required it. He does it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I think it's here that we find his heartbeat. Yes, Paul labored. Yes, he traveled thousands of miles by sea and by foot. Yes, he preached. Yes, he suffered. Yes, he wept over the unbelief of the nations and he pleaded with them to repent and to turn to Christ. But he knew, he knew and he loved the truth that if anything of eternal value was going to be accomplished, it was going to be accomplished by Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. We want hard working missionaries. But missionaries who can also say, yet it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That was Paul's mindset. That was Paul's heartbeat. If a sinner was converted, Christ did that. If a church was planted, Christ did that. If a demon was cast out, Christ did that. If the sick were healed, Christ did that. If the dead were raised, Christ did that. Everything that Paul accomplished, and just think about it. Dozens, hundreds of churches planted throughout the Eastern Roman Empire, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. All of that was in reality not the accomplishment of Paul. It was the accomplishment of Christ. Paul's was not a God does his part and you do your part kind of soteriology. It was a God does it all from beginning to end, and he uses us as means kind of soteriology. Now, why is this vital to the task of missions? I'm going to mention just two reasons, and I'll be done. Number one, believing that God saves sinners, that God saves sinners, not my mission strategies, not my polished, properly contextualized gospel presentation, but the power of God through the word, by the spirit, that will prevent me from adopting a mission strategy on the basis of whether or not it works. That's pragmatism. Rather, I will go about the task of missions according to whether it faithfully presents Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. The job of a missionary is not the successful making of converts or the successful planting of churches. The goal of the missionary is not to be able to write back to their partner churches, we baptized this many people and we planted this many churches. The goal of the missionary is to be faithful in proclaiming Christ and praying that Christ would make converts and plant churches. I want you to go home this afternoon and I challenge you to read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. And you will see how Paul's Calvinistic, yes, I know that's an anachronism. Paul was a Calvinist 1,600 years before Calvin was. But I want you to see how his Calvinistic theology informed his mission strategy. Specifically, look at verses 21 to 24. 
Paul says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, if Paul had listened to the uh, foremost missiologists of his day, they would have said, Paul, missions is easy. You just give people what they want and reach their felt needs and they'll follow you. Wow the Jews with your signs. Impress the Greeks with your eloquence and your philosophical wisdom and you'll have a church. Paul said, no, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll preach Christ crucified, which trips up the Jews and repulses the Greeks. And then I'm going to wait for God to sovereignly and effectually call those whom he's chosen for salvation. They were the ones who, by the power of God, heard the gospel differently. The same gospels coming out of Paul's mouth. There's not two gospels, one to the elect and one to the non-elect. The same gospels coming out of Paul's mouth, but it's being heard in, in three different ways. The Jews are hearing it as a stumbling block. The Greeks are hearing it as foolishness. But this third group comprised of both Jews and Greeks, they're hearing it not as a stumbling block or foolishness, but as the wisdom and the power of God. They say by the power of God through his effectual call, which is rooted in his eternal election, they say, yes, I want Jesus. And Paul says, that's, that's the way I do missions. Second reason. Believing that God saves sinners sovereignly by his mercy and grace according to election through the preaching of Christ crucified will keep a missionary on the field even when results are not immediately forthcoming. Such missionaries know that there is no other methodology but preaching Christ crucified. Uh, You could change and do something else, and you could probably gather a group of followers, but they wouldn't be Christians and you wouldn't have a church. And such missionaries know that at the end of days, there will be a redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the globe, which means that there are people in that place who will believe. So I'm just going to keep preaching. I don't know who they are, but God does. So I'm going to keep preaching Christ to everyone until either they kill me or kick me out of the country or I've planted a church. But until then, I'm not leaving. That's the kind of missionaries we want to partner with. And I'll tell you, that's the kind of missionaries we have partnered with. Which brings us full circle to Carey and Fuller. They were Calvinistic Baptists. They believed in unconditional election, effectual calling, total depravity, particular redemption, the perseverance of the saints. They they launched a modern mission movement that is still going strong 225 years later. A movement that very well may usher in the end of the age. When Carey set sail for India in 1793. He had no idea what he was in for. He'd never been there. Few people had. But he wrote, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans, he's talking about the East Asia, 
or the East India Trading Company, though the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse than they are, though I was deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. And indeed, desertions, persecutions, and obstructions of every kind assaulted his ministry. His partner abandoned him and returned to England. They were constantly short of funds. Carey contracted malaria. His son died of dysentery. His wife was overtaken by mental illness. And a fire destroyed years of translation work. On top of that, it took seven years before Carey baptized his first convert. And yet he persevered. How? He believed God's cause would triumph through all these trials. He believed that God's sovereign purpose could not fail. And he was right. By the time he died in 1834, he had translated the entire Bible into six major Indian languages. He wasn't formally educated either, by the way. And parts of other languages and dialects, his dictionaries and grammars, helped generations learn the Indian languages. He founded a Bible college, which is still functioning today, providing education, liberal arts and theological education to 2,500 students. He worked tirelessly for social reform in India. He fought for the abolition of infanticide, the practice of widow burning and euthanasia. And after 41 years on the field without a single furlough, Carrie's mission, by the time he died, had baptized over 700 converts. What kind of missionaries do we want to partner with at First Baptist Nixa? We want to part with missionaries like that. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you will send us these kinds of missionaries. And I pray that when they come, they will find this kind of church. Lord, we, we reiterate the prayer that was offered at the beginning from Psalm 67. We ask you to bless us, to cause your face to shine upon us in order that the peoples may hear of your name and know of your ways and be glad in the salvation which you have accomplished through Christ. Lord, we understand our role. We're rope holders. So I pray that you would give us strong hands that do not grow weary. I pray that you would give us generous hearts, clear vision. And I pray that we would be a good and biblical mission partner church for the missionaries to which you will send to us. Make us like Antioch. Make us like Philippi. Make us like Rome. And Lord, I pray that you would call out from this people Pauline missionaries. Whether it be short-term or long-term, I pray that you would fashion their hearts after Paul's heart, which was after Christ's heart. And I pray that you will call them forth and send them through this church. May the nations be made glad through the proclamation of the gospel that emanates from this church. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.